Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today. We'll be in Ephesians 6. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 9. I want to tell you uh, just, just right out of the gate uh, that I believe that there are no less than four sermons that could be preached on our text this morning. Uh, I believe that. I believe that there are no less than four sermons that could be preached and possibly should be preached on this text because I have written no less than four sermons on this passage that is before us. And that was just in the last, just in the last week. Um, I also want to tell you that it is a dangerous thing, at, at least for me, uh, to sit in a car for nine and a half hours on a Saturday prior to preaching with nothing to really do but drive, uh, pray, and process. And so coming off the heels of that experience yesterday and hoping to be faithful to the Word of God that we have before us. Basically, I'm not telling you to totally disregard the outline that you see in your worship guide. We're going to hit those points, but if we don't hit them in order, don't hold that against me. Um, and so here we go as we set off on this, on this journey together this morning. I'm hoping, and I have been praying, that we And I mean that, that all of us, um, that all of us can come to this passage with humility, with a genuine desire to hear from the Word of God and hearts that are prepared to be impacted, if not not transformed altogether by the Word that we have here before us. So turn with me, if you haven't already, please turn with me uh, now to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 5 and read through verse 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you already know my prayer. You've heard it repeatedly. But I don't think one more time is going to hurt. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come and just move me out of the way. That you would come and speak through your word. That you would give clarity. That you wouldn't let my, you wouldn't let my stammering tongue stand in the way of what your word has to tell us. So, Lord, I pray that you would come and work amongst us today. And that you would come and be God. That you would come and be Lord. That you would be master even in this moment. Lord, help us to be your followers, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find ourselves today in the midst of a a section of this letter where the Apostle Paul is focusing. He He is looking with intensity at what he calls the walk of the Christian. We were told back in chapter 5 to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then down in 5, 8, in chapter 5, verse 8, we read, For at one time you were darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So it's, it's you had a former identity, and now you have a present new identity. So walk in the fullness of who you are in Christ. And then in 5.15, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise but is wise. So now it's be imitators of God because you are His children. Walk in love just as Christ loved you. Remember who you were. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not lose sight of the profound weight of, of glory that is the grace of God in Christ that He would save a sinner such as me. And then let's, and then let's display some wisdom. And so what we're seeing here is that Paul is, is concerned with the walk of the Christian And what we need to understand, what we need to hold on to today as we enter into our passage is that the walk of a Christian is effectively the sum total. It's the sum total of his observable behavior. The walk of the Christian is is the expressed heart of the Christian. And so Paul, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that Paul, right? That Paul is genuinely, he is genuinely concerned about our actions, about the behavior of, of one who has been redeemed. It's not, that, it's not that behavior saves you, and it never will be. But the walk of a Christian is a direct result of, of the reality that a Christian is a new creation. I want to be clear up front. I don't, I don't want to tread even remotely even remotely toward the edge of a works-based salvation. Scripturally, there's just no room for that. And so if we go back to the beginning of this letter, Paul's letter to the church, to the believers in Ephesus, we'll read in chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. If not, I'm going to go quick. You can read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus and then we get to verse 8 where he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your doing it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, guess what, walk in them. And so we see that word again. It's the same word throughout this letter in the original language. God is concerned about our walk. And the reason for this, the reason that he is so concerned is simple. The reason that God is so concerned about the walk of the Christian is because the Christian bears his name. It's because the Christian bears his name. And so as Paul has worked through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he's used the various branches of the family tree to work through how the world might readily identify a Christian. Now, now one of the sermons that could be preached, and it's a timely, it's a timely sermon given the events of June 17th in Charleston and the resulting public discussion of racial tension and the racism that is alive and well in our world today, the, the tragedy that occurred at Emmanuel AME Church can at the very least be linked back to a tragic misrepresentation of this passage. Okay, that sermon is on Paul's treatment of slavery in general. And I'm going to give you the very short version of that sermon 
right now. The short version of that sermon is that anyone who would use this passage to justify the slavery of the 15th to the 19th centuries, the slavery based largely on race, oppression, on fear, on abuse, on degradation, that person is so far off base that it's hard to even begin to reason with them. And so what we have seen is that evil people will do exactly what their master has done in the past. They'll follow the course of the world. They'll follow the prince of the power of the air. And they'll twist the word of God ultimately, ultimately to their own destruction. And what Paul is doing here, what Paul is doing here is he is using a social construct. He's using a cultural reality of his time to engage in a discussion with the people of God about service and more importantly, about lordship. He did the same thing in Athens in Acts 17. When, when he identified the religious practices that were real and present within that community, he pointed out the truth that while they were religion, that, that was, while they were religious, that, that that was part of their cultural identity, the problem wasn't that they, that they wanted to have faith in something or even someone. The problem was that it was tragically misguided. Their eyes were fixed on the idols of this world, things that they could shape and mold rather than the creator and sustainer of the world. And so what Paul is doing here is what we call contextualization. He's meeting them where they are. And his idea there and here is the redemption of culture within the new community, within the family of faith. He's looking for the transformation of culture within God's people. So that's one sermon. The short version is Paul is not pro-slavery. And we'll establish that further as we move along here. What we need to see this morning, and I think this is also a timely topic, is that the walk of the Christian, the expressed heart of the Christian in the world is the single most effective form of evangelism, the single most effective form of being salt and light in the world, and the single most effective way that the Christian has to join God in the renewal of all things. The redemption of all things. And it is being tragically neglected in the church today. We seem to be fine with Jesus as Savior, but not so comfortable with Jesus as Lord. And so Paul started this letter, this section of his letter, addressing some social behavioral issues. Back in 518, he said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Prior to that, in 5.3, he said, But sexual immorality and all impurity or, or covetousness must not must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then in verse 4 he said, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So, so we've been given some instruction. We've been given some instruction on how to live and move in the social environments in which we find ourselves. We were given some direction on worship. We were told in 519 to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 521, in 521, Paul sets the table for a deeper discussion. I, I was talking uh, probably two weeks ago now with one of our elders about this passage. And we were discussing how this passage, beginning really, really at 521, brings to me the idea of a father or, or maybe a grandfather who has just given some advice like he's just imparted some of his life wisdom to a grandson. And, and while he's got you there in this moment, beginning at 521, he sort of says, while I've got you here, there's some other stuff I've got to tell you. And so he like makes himself a cup of coffee, 
sits you back down on the couch and says, get comfortable. And he begins to unpack some some practical ways that the advice that he has just given must and shall play out in your life. And so he talks about, about wives and husbands, right? We did that. We went through that together. It's incredibly relevant at this moment to understand the biblical view of marriage. And then he talks about children and parents. And so he's, he's working through the household. And then in verse 5, where we picked it up today, he moves to bond servants or, or slaves and earthly masters. And, and if that sounds out of place, we might be missing something because of our cultural disconnect. He discussed two familial relationships, two, two relationships within the home, wives and husbands, and children and parents, and now he's jumping to slaves and masters. Well, well, the reality is that this relationship was also a household relationship. It was a familial relationship. An earthly master in first century Rome was responsible for the lives of his slaves, just like he was responsible for the lives of the wife and his children. Brian Chapel, looking at this passage, says the relationships of husbands, wives, parents, Children, slaves, and master are all considered within the context of the household discussion because all were considered members of the household, those for whom the family was responsible. Now, many of us in the year 2015, many of us wish Paul had used a different illustration here. We're probably okay with the examples of a husband and wife. We're probably okay with the example of parents and children, but this example, this illustration of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ creates it. His use of the master slave relationship, at least for many, creates a great deal of tension. And so we try to explain it away. We talk about how slavery in the first century wasn't the same as slavery that, of the slavery that we think of today, and that's true, at least, at least to a degree. Uh, first century slavery was not based on race. It, it wasn't it wasn't based on the color of your skin. There was legally within, within that system, there was the ability to purchase your freedom. Slaves filled a variety of different roles within the first century community. Some estimates say that, that upwards of 35% of the Roman population were, were actually bond servants or slaves during this time. One commentary on this passage pointed out that Felix, uh, the Roman governor, who Paul is going to stand before in, in Acts 23, was once a slave, but had gained his freedom and worked his way into a high political position. And so clearly slavery was different in some respects. But in others, it was, it was not so different. It was not so different because ultimately the life of the slave belonged to the earthly master. And there are many accounts of abuse and brutality within the Roman system. And so what we need to understand as we look at this passage is that Paul's primary objective his chief concern was not, was not his personal welfare or, or his condition, but his primary purpose was the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. And I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, Paul operated under the deep conviction that social and personal conditions were not the primary issue in life. Fellowship with God, freedom from sin, transformation into Christ's likeness, and the advance of the kingdom of God, these were his central concerns. And so understanding that Paul is far less concerned with where you walk than how you walk and how it impacts the advancement of the kingdom. Let's look at his instructions to the servants. Look at these with me beginning in verse 5. Just track with me. We're going to go in sort of bullet point style here for a second. 
Because in each of the, each of the four verses, in verses 5 through 8, the, the verses that are addressed to the servants, Paul mentions, and, and this is important, he mentions Jesus Christ. We need, to pick up on, we need to pick up on this or we really run the risk of missing the profound truth of this passage. So here we go. Let's, let's track with Paul here. In verse 5, we see the language at the end that says, as you would Christ. In verse 6, it's as bondservants of Christ. In verse 7, we see it says, as to the Lord. And in verse 8, it says that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And so what he's doing here is he's calling servants, or in our case, workers, to have a Christ-centered perspective on their work, whatever that work might be. You need to know that the encouragement from Paul in this text is that whatever the believer finds himself doing, wherever he finds himself doing it, you are servants, ultimately, of Christ. And, and Christ is deeply interested in, in who you are and what you are doing. And so by understanding that we have a new master, a new Lord, no longer following the course of this world, no longer following the prince of the power of the air, we are now free to live as bondservants of Christ. And that means that we work as unto the Lord. The, the other night... Um, the other night my, with my family, I was, I was watching this show called American Ninja Warrior. Um, and it's an interesting title because the people are neither ninjas nor warriors. Like they're not being sneaky at all. And they're not fighting, they're not fighting a battle. So I, I, anyway, I'm a little confused on the title. But anyway, it's essentially a show where people attempt to navigate sort of an extreme obstacle course. And these people train all the time for this, okay? They're climbing on stuff. They're, they're building weird contraptions like in their backyard. I'm sure they make great neighbors, right? Um, they're just out there all the time doing pull-ups and running and jumping and doing it. I'm sure it's a lot of fun. Many of them really seem to commit a great deal of their lives to this purpose, all the while just hoping for a, for a shot at the actual course on television. The, the show is, is, um, it is a testament uh, to hard work and dedication. The people work very, very, very hard. Now, in the middle of the show, as, as we were watching it, uh, a commercial came on. And it, it's a commercial that takes place in a dungeon. It's sort of dimly lit. Um, it's got sort of a menacing feel to it, right? There's a grumpy-looking fellow kind of walking down the hall, sort of marching. He's, uh, he's moving with authority, He's moving with purpose, he's moving with conviction, and he barges into what seems to be the torture chamber of this, of this particular dungeon. It's a very Princess Bride sort of scene. Um, and he asks the two men in there with the prisoner how it's coming. He wants to know if they are doing their job with the prisoner. And the one guy responds, he'll, he'll tell us everything he knows very shortly, sir, implying um, they're committed to doing their work and retrieving the information from this prisoner. They are committed to doing what they are supposed to be doing. And then, you know, the boss leaves, assuming that, that they have the task under control. But as soon as the boss leaves, a sort of jolly tune starts playing in the background, you know, sort of a pipe, pipe tune in the background. Um, and the prison guards flip the table and they start playing ping pong. Um, and the voiceover comes on and it says this. It says this, if your boss stops by, you act like you're working. It's what you do. 
And then the catch is that if you want to save 15% on car insurance, you switch to their particular brand. I, I'm not going to mention the title but of the company, but I'm, you probably have it now. But did you catch the quote? It's given in such a matter of fact, such an unassuming, just telling you how it is manner, that it's actually sort of disarming. It's, if your boss stops by, you act like you're working. And then he adds, it's what you do. And so here's the irony of it. In the middle of a show, in the middle of a show that is built around highlighting the hard work and dedication of people to achieve success at what can only be considered like a niche hobby, in the middle of a show about persevering, about going the extra mile, doing your absolute best, in the middle of that show, we're told that culturally what is now normative is to be lazy and ineffective in your work. When Paul addresses the servants in this passage, his goal ultimately is the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords who will reign forever and ever. And so when he gives these instructions to the servants, to us, as workers, as bondservants of Christ, he says to work with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. As he says this, he knows He knows even at that time that this type of work ethic is countercultural. He knows that a Christian worker should, should stand out. He will be in his workplace. He will be peculiar. And he will be displaying in his work just as in his home and just as in his church the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your expression of goodwill towards your employer, your boss, is an expression of your love for the Lord and a submission to His authority. And isn't that really the issue? Isn't isn't that what really strikes at something in our old nature? When, When we think about authority, it stirs something of the rebel heart that still remains it still remains in us. When we talk about being a slave, when we talk about being a servant, a bond servant of Christ, we often, we often leave it in the realm of the abstract. We're content to say it, but do we believe it? Now, we use the language of being purchased with great regularity within the church. We do. We sing it. I mean, we sing it. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. I know it's set to a nice tune and I dare not sing it in front of you, but when we sing that song together, Do we just gloss over the fact that it says you've been bought? We sing it. 
but do we mean it? Like we sing it, we have sung it, but does the world see it? Does the world see in you what Paul wrote in Colossians 3 where he said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We have to understand that if you are in Christ, a new creation in Christ Jesus, there is, there is now one Lord. There is one Master And it's not you. We see it in Paul's address to earthly masters in verse 9, where he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So it's, remember what I just said to the servants? Remember what I just said to the slave? The same goes for you. Do the same to them. Work your best for them. Show them by your walk, your love for the Lord, and lead them well. Be a leader worth following, not one who has to resort to threats. And then Paul continues saying, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. As hard as it might be to believe, your job, your job, the job that you drive to joyfully on Monday mornings, maybe not. The job you drive to on Monday mornings. The job that you were hired to do. Whatever it might be. Wherever it might be. Is not just a job. It's a divine appointment. Given to you by your Father in heaven. When I was 13 years old. um, My parents took me along with them. And the team of high school students that they were working with. uh, On a mission journey to West Virginia. I was that kid who was too young to be there, um, but they brought me anyway. Uh, too, young, too young to possibly grasp the depth of what was actually happening on this journey. But God used it in a very, very powerful way. And I distinctly remember during, during the time working on the home, working on that home up in the hills outside of Fairmont, West Virginia, feeling like the task that I was being given to do They didn't really matter. They were trivial things. While the older kids were working on like real projects. And they were building stuff. And if y'all had seen this team from this church, you'd be, it was a miracle what took place up there. They were, they put walls in a house that had no walls. I still to this day do not understand how they accomplished that task with an electrician and a bunch of high school kids. But it, God, God can do it. Um, While the older kids were working on real projects, I was being tasked with the safe work, the easy work, and it bothered me. And I remember one of the other leaders on that trip coming over to me, seeing me probably hanging my head, uh, expressing my disappointment without saying a word. If you've had a 13-year-old, you know they're gifted at that. Um, And he asked me why I was upset, and I told him, just as honest as I could, the jobs I'm being given don't matter. Nobody will ever see them. Nobody will ever care about these things. And his response to me was gentle. It was gentle. He didn't hit me over the head, although he probably wanted to. 
in that moment. He didn't hit me over the head and say, just get back to work. But he was very direct, and he said this. I still remember. I'm sitting in the front yard right now of that house hearing these words over again. He said, Adam, it matters to God. Even if nobody ever acknowledges it, never notices it, God sees it. And you are put here in this moment to do that job. And so, and here was the catch, you paint that house, you paint that house as if you were painting the very house of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a culture today, and I think this has been obvious. Mark alluded to it in our commission to the New York team. We, we live in a culture today that has given up on the idea of walking away from God and has opted for the full-out sprint away from Him. We've seen that this week, and, and, and to give your hearts a, a, little, a little ease, you're going to continue to see it. The rebellion of humanity against His Creator is the same as that of Genesis 3. We still want to be the Lord of our lives. We still want to be like God. We still want to, here's the cat, we want to own ourselves. But when Paul used the work, the, the word there in the Greek is, is doulos. It's translated nearly everywhere as slave. He used it for a purpose. There's actually another Greek word that he could have used if he meant for it to be a free man working for someone. That's the word oikonomos. It's the, it's the word Jesus used to describe the dishonest manager in Luke 16. This was a free man working within a home. But Paul used the word doulos. This is because if you are in Christ, you have a master. You have been purchased by his blood you belong to Him. This, this week you're going to be challenged to submit to Christ. It will happen with your spouse. You're going to have to strive to love your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It will happen with your kids. Whether they're grown or whether they're little, you'll, you'll have to strive to love your children as your Father in Heaven has first loved you. And it will happen with your coworkers. You will have to strive to work with a sincere heart as unto the Lord so that in the end, He gets the glory. You're going to feel tension in yourself to live for yourself. And in those moments, in those moments, you're going to have to strive. Listen, we're, we're, we're going to have to strive. It's going to take some grace-driven effort to walk as children of light this week and to remember that as children of the living God, we bear His name. We have His name upon our hearts. So you don't just represent yourself. You don't just represent St. Andrews. You don't just represent the Williams family or whatever your last name is. When you go as a Christian into the world, you bear the name of Christ. And Christ is deeply interested in how you carry His name with you. It always takes effort to walk. It takes effort to walk. Without, without effort, without energy, walking turns, well, walking turns to standing still <laughs> or sitting down. Uh, but we have work to do. We have work to do for our Lord and Savior, for our Master, because wherever you are, you were put there for a purpose. 
And that purpose is for the advancement of the kingdom of God. To display His glory. And in that, in that you display your love for Him. So let's, let's get to it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, this is a terribly humbling thing to consider. That regardless of where we are in life, you not only put us there, but you put us there for a purpose. God, I pray that we would believe that. Regardless of what we do in the morning, regardless of where we go in the morning, regardless of who we work for or who works for us, Lord, I pray that we would represent you. We belong to you. God, help us to live in light of that. Help us to live as your people in this world. And God, I pray that you would send your spirit to strengthen us for that task. It's the brutal reality is that we just can't do it on our own. And so we look to you. We lean on you. We rest in you. God, we're yours. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.